You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. Well, just when you thought the Republican House majority couldn't get more chaotic, the Republican House majority says, hold my beer. Late last night, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, who won the nomination for speaker with 113 votes in the Republican conference, withdrew from seeking the speakership as it became increasingly clear that he would not get the 217 votes needed to secure the gavel. And this is all happening as war breaks out between Hamas and Israel and another government shutdown looms on the horizon with just 35 calendar days until it runs out of money again. Joining me now once again to try to help make sense of all of this, Mariana Sotomayor, congressional reporter for The Washington Post. Mariana, welcome back to First Look. Thank you. Always happy to join on these crazy weeks. Crazy. Okay, so what's going on? What happened? Well, it's been another unprecedented time. It's the only way to really describe it, at least what we're seeing here on Capitol Hill. Essentially, we have seen McCarthy ousted last week, and just this week, Republicans gathered to pick a speaker, and behind closed doors, they picked Majority Leader Steve Scalise, who has been wanting to be speaker for years. He's been in leadership for about a decade. He's been on that trajectory. And in 24 hours or less after that, he decided to step back. And a big reason why fundamentally is because Republicans' majority is extremely thin. This has been a constant issue for them. There's, they can only lose four votes. Earlier in the year, they can only lose five. And while they were able to you know, twist arms on different uh, points of policy, at the end of the day, they were able to pass a number of priority items, definitely not as much as they had wanted. And now we're seeing all of those tensions, whether it is on person, they are personality based, whether it's on policy, whether it's based on how the House and and just fundamentally federal government should function. All of that is coming to a head. And all of that contributed to why Steve Scalise could not lock down enough votes. When he won behind closed doors earlier this week, there were a number of Republicans who said that that they were going to stand up on the House floor and still vote for former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy and Scalise have had a lot of, they've just had a trust deficit for a long time. There has been a significant amount of tension. McCarthy allies were still going to stick by him. There are still some who want to stick by him. And that's a reason why you didn't see anything happen on the, on the House floor in terms of the vote. A lot of hardline Republicans also didn't like Scalise. And we are currently at a point where, yes, House Republicans will be convening again to pick a speaker behind closed doors. Jim Jordan is still in the race, but many Republicans saying not even he or maybe any Republican can get to that necessary 217 votes to become speaker. See, this is how good you are, Mariana. In that one answer, you answered all of my remaining questions. <laughs> all of my remaining questions. But I'm going to ask them anyway. So, one, the, the, uh, the House is supposed to go into session today. Any chance that they will actually hold a floor vote for Speaker? It is so unpredictable. Like, we have really been living, even my sources, even lawmakers, when they, they're, they're supposed to know what's going on, right? And, and when you ask them what's happening, 
they actively do not know. Like we are living minute by minute trying to figure out what members would want to do, what leadership, even though we have the vacancy in leadership, wants to do. And that's kind of how it's been. When we saw Scalise emerge as speaker designate, I mean, immediately members were saying we should go to the floor because Scalise should know that he doesn't have that 217 number. Well, there was a number of other Republicans saying maybe we shouldn't do that because then the American public will see how embarrassing it is to be a Republican right now because they wouldn't be able to have gotten 217. You would have seen the same rounds and rounds of balloting that we saw earlier in the year. So we don't really know. And we also at this point, and Republicans were saying this on the record last night when they were leaving their meetings, that they don't know if they can change even some conference rules. They don't know if Jim Jordan can get to 217 or even a majority behind closed doors. They don't know who else may emerge. We might see that today. Who else, as a, as a Republican, may step up and say, hey, if Jim Jordan can't get 217, maybe I can. Well on, well, on that point, Mariana, because as, as I listen to you and as I and as I read the coverage, I'm sitting here thinking, with all the factions within the Republican House majority, can anyone get 217 votes? Can anyone be that can? Is there that one person who can bridge all those divides to get to 217? So far, it's not it's not McCarthy, it's not Scalise, it's not Jordan. So is it the speaker, um, the speaker pro tem, I think is the, 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 the correct title, or is it uh, Tom Emmer? Is it Byron Donalds? I think that's it, right? Byron Donalds from Florida. Could any of those people pop up and get 217? So again, because you can, any Republican can only lose four votes. That's what makes it tricky. Everyone has an opinion, right? And, and there's just so many points of, of, of difference, whether it's ideological or, again, personal opinion. So that's what makes it tricky. Jim Jordan, a lot of Republicans thought they could coalesce around him. Of course, moderate Republicans, those vulnerable Biden 18 district Republicans are very hesitant to support him simply because he is known nationally as Trump's right-hand man, right? So that could affect them electorally. However, these are also the kind of Republicans who just want to get back to governing. So some of them last night were saying, yeah, he could affect me. But if he wins in the closed door ballot today, then I will vote for him because we just need a speaker. Like they're basically getting at the point where we just need a warm body. I don't think that might be enough for Jordan. Um, when you talk about someone like Tom Emmer, a lot of the far right, hardline conservatives like him because he hasn't been an establishment figure. He's been in leadership for only nine months. They like that. Also, they like how blunt he is. They feel like he's telling the truth, which has been part of the issue with McCarthy, making too many promises he couldn't keep. It seems like Emmer is not like that. Moderates like him because he was the NRCC chairman, the elections uh, chairman the last two cycles who brought in a lot of freshmen and sophomore Republicans into the House fold. So he seems to be one that a lot of people say could be a consensus figure. But again, he did not win large enough of a majority to prevent this. So some people are blaming him for that. A lot of Republicans are admitting that someone like a Jim Jordan, a Byron Donalds, more from the Freedom Caucus vein, it could get tricky. But at the same time, you're just seeing a number of members. And this is why it's so confusing to say what is exactly going to happen. Members saying, we just need someone. We just mm -hmm. need someone.
Let me get you on two, two more things before I have to let you go. Um, back to the 18 Biden Republicans, meaning uh, Republicans who won in districts that President Biden won in the 2020 election. Is there any talk at all that they could approach Democrats if this goes on too long and say, hey, we'll work with you and make Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader, make him speaker as a means of not only getting a warm body, <laughs> but getting a speaker. So it's actually something that I've heard more jokingly where Republicans have said, well, the person who has gotten the most votes already is Hakeem Jeffries. He has the entire Democratic caucus behind him, 212. And even behind closed doors, Scalise couldn't get to that number. I think he was like 100 votes short from 212. So that is saying a lot. However, Republicans are not at this point eager, and I don't think they will cross over to elect Jeffries. There is talk amount, um, among some of those vulnerable Republicans, as well as more moderate, safe district Republicans, who would like to empower the speaker, the speaker pro temp, Patrick McHenry. He is a very close McCarthy ally, one of his best friends. That's why he is in this position right now. And Democrats are trying to look at ways I should say Republicans with Democrats are trying to look at ways to empower him because right now he is just a figurehead whose singular role, according to the House rules, is to help facilitate speakership elections. A lot of members just starting to see if it's even constitutional to widen what he could do so that they could vote and, and help Israel. They could start the appropriations process to fund the government in a month or so, but it's, it really remains unclear whether that can even happen. Given that scenario, you know who I was thinking would be a great speaker if this were a television show? Frank Underwood <laughs> from House of, from House of Cards. Um, one last question for you, Mariana. Uh, is there any concern being expressed by Republicans, House Republicans, uh, behind closed doors that this chaos and inaction will hurt them at the ballot box next November? You know, it's, it's something that you are starting to hear more. You know, this has always been a question because of, of that four vote margin that they have. You know, they haven't passed a lot of the priorities that they promised on the campaign trail because again, difference of opinion. And now what's been interesting to me is a lot of Republicans who are more in the governing type, conservatives who want to govern, they have been privately expressing this. Now they're publicly saying it. They are really concerned about the institution they are saying that Republicans can't govern because of that, because they just don't have the votes to be able to do anything on their own. They're not ready yet to go over and talk to Democrats, but this could affect them in, in, in the election next year. I mean, the more the public sees the dysfunction amongst Republicans, the, the ruling majority of the House and nothing getting done. I mean, that, at least Democrats are ready to say, look, we never shut down the government. We never ousted our speaker. We probably won't do that if we are in the majority. We can actually govern. And Republicans right now don't even have that messaging, don't even have a major fundraiser in McCarthy anymore. So they are a couple steps behind in this moment, and they are really worried about it. Yeah, and one, one other thing, just to re remind folks, Speaker Pelosi, Democrat, had the same majority that um, the now leaderless Republican majority has and was able to get a lot done. So, um, ooh, this is, wow, Mariana. How, 
Um, an incredible time to be a congressional reporter. Mariana Sotomayor, congressional reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for coming back to First Look, especially on short notice. <laughs> Have a good weekend. Always happy to join you all. Thanks. We're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post editor-at-large, Robert Kagan, and Washington Post columnist, Hugh Hewitt. Hugh, Bob, welcome back to First Look. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks. All right, so uh, before we get to the other huge story, um, uh, and that is um, the Israel-Hamas war, let's just wrap up the conversation I was having with Mariana about what is going on uh, on Capitol Hill, Hugh, when it comes to the Republican House majority trying to find a leader, trying to find a speaker. Would love your analysis, because I, you know all of the, the major players involved. What is going on, and who's going to be the person who's going to get the gavel? Well, I don't know what's going to happen, Jonathan. Thank you for crediting me with knowing everyone involved. I did have on Congressman Mike Garcia, F-18 pilot veteran, and Congressman Ryan Zinke, former commander of SEAL Team 6 this morning, the serious military veterans in the House GOP conference want the vote to move to the floor so that people are on the record on every vote. And so I hope they begin to take votes today because it's not, the, the first story merges with the second story. We cannot not have a speaker when a, an armada of American ships are entering within range of the Hezbollah missile arsenal. And I think it may dawn increasingly on the holdouts from both sides of the caucus, those who are uh, never uh, Scalise, never McCarthy, those who are never Jordan. They've got to figure out, maybe it is Patrick McHenry, but I just want it done in public so people can take names and remember who, uh, who, who absolutely did not do their job at this crisis moment. And Hugh, does this argue then that Kevin McCarthy, they should go back to Kevin McCarthy? Make him speaker I asked again. Speaker Emeritus that question on Monday. He said he'll do whatever the conference does, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. Patrick McHenry is, I think, if I were uh, laying odds, I'd say Patrick McHenry is likely to take a 90 day stint. Nobody wants the job, Jonathan, uh, <laughs> but somebody's got to do it and they got to get someone in there for crisis reasons. And, and Bob, I want to pick up on something, a, a really crucial point Hugh just made, and that is there is no Speaker of the House as an armada of American warships are heading into range of Hezbollah missiles. From, from your vantage point, what does this speaker fight here in Washington, what kind of message does that send not only to the world, but to all the players involved um, in the Middle East, from Israel to uh, Iran to Lebanon to Egypt? Is that a rhetorical question, John? <laughs> we, we know what kind of signal it sends. It sends a signal of a country in complete disarray, which is, in fact, what our country is right now. But um, And it's going to get worse as the election gets closer. So, um, you know, I think it's important. It, it's easy to lose sight as we watch the clown show and we watch the clowns tumble out of the cars that there is some very serious, this is serious business in the following sense, which is, uh, you know, it is ne the Trump movement and Donald Trump himself has never cared about the Republican Party. So when we talk about, uh, you know, how is this going to affect the Republican Party, uh, I think that, you know, the Trump movement is hostile to the establishment Republican Party, which they've decided now includes uh, Kevin McCarthy and others. And 
Their goal is disruption. Their goal is chaos. They are at war with the American system right now. They are trying to discredit uh, various institutions. Obviously, they, you know, many Trump supporters no longer believe that the justice system operates in this country. And now we are watching the destruction of one of the houses uh, of Congress. And I think, you know, when you've got, you know, this is not all just happening by accident. There are people coordinating this, I'm sure. Steve Bannon is there, uh, you know, giving direction. And and so we need to understand this is part of the rebellion against the American system. It's not just a clown show. Um, you know, uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin uh, is in Israel right now. He, he um, spoke earlier today. And this comes the day after Secretary of State Antony Blinken landed in Israel. Um, with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu by his side, Secretary Blinken made this pledge. Let's listen. The message that I bring to Israel is this. You may be strong enough on your own to defend yourself, but as long as America exists, you will never ever have to. We will always be there by your side. So despite the disarray in Washington, particularly uh, in the House, how important was it to have the Secretary of State um, um, standing side by side with the Israeli Prime Minister and delivering that very uh, forceful, supportive message, Hugh? Well, I'm glad he's there. I'm glad Secretary Austin is there. I think uh, President Biden gave an OK speech on Tuesday. But I will leave it to Bob, who is an expert on it. If you want to deter Hezbollah and Iran from getting involved, name them and tell them what will happen. Uh, former President Trump got into great trouble this weekend, but he was uh, is always able to call back that when the time came, he took out Soleimani and he told Iran, if you hurt one a single American, the following many dozen sites will be leveled. Deterrence requires specificity. So I hope Secretary Blinken, Secretary Austin, the president, get very specific to Hezbollah and Iran in the days and weeks ahead. All right, Bob. Well, look, I mean, we've sent a, another carrier group to the region. I think the message is clear. The Pentagon is putting out word. I think Lloyd Austin has specifically, uh, you know, warned the Iranians not to take action. I think that the, you know, whatever deterrent capacity we have, I think, is is on display. There is a question, of course, as to, you know, whether people can be deterred. Obviously, you know, Hamas's goal uh, in this horrific uh, massacre was to bring down a conflagration on the entire Middle East. And, you know, we may be able to deter uh, Iran and Hezbollah for the time being. I'm worried about the broader Arab reaction uh, I, I think that, you know, that Hamas had it in mind to stir up what we used to call the Arab street. Uh, we see the demonstrations around the world. Interestingly, we're not seeing them in the Arab countries, but that's because of the incredible repression uh, in these countries. Unfortunately, American policy has been to support these, uh, in some cases, rather brutal dictators who have got a lid on the country, but I don't know if they can keep that lid. I'm sure Hamas and others in the region are gambling uh, that we're going to see some explosions in some of these countries, and that's going to turn this into a much broader regional crisis. Bob, there's been reporting that Iran was involved in the planning of Hamas's surprise attack, but administrations so far have not made such assertions. Um, given Iran's past support 
of Hamas, does it stand to reason that Iran must have played a, a pivotal role in last Saturday's surprise attack? I, I'm in no position to make a judgment about that, and I'm not going to. Uh, you know, eventually it'll become clear. We know where Iran's interests lie. We know what Iran's objectives are in the region. Um, and and this is perfectly, you know, if you ask the question, cui bono, uh, this is certainly in line with Iran's objectives. So whether they were actively participant or not, they certainly are uh, hoping to benefit from it. Uh, they think that, you know, they may well believe, uh, as, as I'm concerned is the case, that this may in fact inflame uh, the entire Muslim world, uh, which from their point of view would be a benefit. It's going to put the United States and other Western countries on the back foot. You already see China coming in now behind, uh, you know, the Palestinian issue on this issue, and and clearly they're going to side as they have historically with what used to be called Arab nationalism. So you know, I, I think we're going to be. It'll be interesting to watch this different strategic, uh, you know, in a global sense, the different strategic pieces fall into place here. Mm -hmm. Hugh, yesterday the Post reported that the United States and, and Qatar have agreed to stop Iran from tapping the $6 billion fund it was going to have access to as part of that prisoner swap um, deal announced earlier this month. Why is this the right thing to do if that money could only have been used for humanitarian purposes? Because money is fungible, Jonathan. If you give Iran $6 billion of their money, it's their assets, it was held in South Korean Bank, and we had blocked it, we gave it to Qatar as part of the hostage trade. Uh, it's fungible with another $6 billion, which can go to support Hezbollah and Hamas. And so it's very revealing that the administration thought it was necessary to stop that $6 billion, and Qatar has agreed to do that, because Iran is Hamas. Hamas is an arm of Iran. People have to understand that Hezbollah is an Iranian operation. It's the leading sponsor of terrorism in the world. And they are on the brink of getting a nuclear weapon. And I think, if anything, what Saturday showed us is that fanatics will do anything to kill Jews. And I thought we were past Holocaust 2.0 being a reality, but it is clear to me from the massacre of 10-7 that there are a lot of people who would just as soon see Israel go down no matter what the casualty count is, no matter how far flung it is. Mm -hmm. You know, Bob, the White House said yesterday that 27 Americans have been killed and at least 14 others are missing since the violence began last weekend. Americans are also known to be among those being held hostage by Hamas. Talk about how that fact complicates further an already deadly situation. Well, I mean... This is obviously a, a tactic by Hamas to try to blunt whatever response uh, the Israelis uh, might want to carry out, and also, by the way, whatever whatever the United States might want to do. Um, you know, I don't I don't know what the answer is. Uh, Israel and I think the United States are now going to be confronted with horrific choices. Um, that is the position, let's be clear, that Hamas has put us in. They put us in this horrific choice because of their barbarism. Um, uh, and honestly, I, you know, I, I, I don't have wisdom on how to handle this particular situation. It's a tragedy uh, without any question, no matter how it, you know, let's pray right. that we get these people out. But it is just simply a tragedy.
Well, Bob, let me follow up by asking you. It's an atrocity is what this, sorry. Right. Well, let me follow up by asking, uh, how worried should we be about this escalating to a wider war with direct U.S. involvement? Well, I, you know, we are in an early, I'm sorry, was that directed to Hugh? I'm sorry. Hugh, Bob, and Hugh, you can jump in after. Oh, okay. Ahead, no, look, I mean, w one thing we, we need to be clear about is that we're at the very, very beginning of this crisis. And and what, what course this crisis is going to take is going to depend on events. And, you know, it's nice for all of us to sit around here and speculate about things, but we, we really don't know what's going to happen. Uh, as I mentioned before, it seems pretty clear to me that um, I would be very surprised if there isn't some kind of large uh, response in the Arab world uh, you know, that is that that falls out of the control of these dictators that we've been hoping can control everything. And, you know, what what that leaves us with in the Middle East is going to be an interesting question, because under by the way, this is not this administration. It, numerous administrations have built our strat, you know, now have built our strategy around these dictatorships who do not represent the views of the people uh, in those countries. And I feel like we're going to now have to reckon uh, with the consequences of that. And I think it's going to lead to ultimately a very dramatic shift in the direction of, of, of our policy and, and many policies in the region. We, we're in a new moment. Hamas has introduced us to a new era in the Middle East, uh, not in the world, but in the Middle East for sure. And we're going to be finding our way through it, uh, you know, <laughs> as best we can. But, mm -hmm. but things are about to happen that we are not going to be able to predict. Hugh, you wanted to jump in. Well, I, I think Bob is exactly right. We're back to a total war situation. The statements from the prime minister, from every member of the war cabinet, uh, the security cabinet in Israel, from President Bush yesterday, former President Bush, makes it clear that uh, we moved up the ladder of escalation quite dramatically. How wide could it go? We do not know. I just repeatedly point out to everyone on the show today, and I'm sure Bob knows this, and you know this, Jonathan, 140,000 missiles are in southern Lebanon in the control of fanatics. And we've got a lot of ships there and the Israeli people are at risk. So it could go very large, very fast, and we need to be very serious about it. And I don't have any idea what's gonna happen for the reasons that both Bob put out. General Petraeus wrote a must read piece in our competitor, Wall Street Journal, but I'll mention it, about how surprise attacks very rarely lead to where those people who launched them thought it would go. Very rarely successful but the escalation ladder, we're, we're climbing it every minute. Um, we're gonna go into a little bit of overtime here because I've got to get in one more question here and I'd love both your thoughts on this. Yesterday, um, Secretary Austin said that the United States, quote, can walk and chew gum at the same time. And this was in response to questions about America's commitment to Israel and Ukraine. Uh, is that possible politically at home though, is the question. Bob, you go first and then I'll end with you. Well, I think it is, but it's going to be, you know, we're going to run up against the challenge of the Trump movement, which I think, you know, we've seen what effect it's had in the in the House in particular in terms of, I don't know how many members have, maybe 90 Republican members have now voted against Ukraine aid. Uh, uh, Senator Hawley is constantly saying we should drop everything in Ukraine to deal with every other issue in the world. And, you know, I, I obviously, I think I'm, I'm, I, I, Curious to get Hughes' view, but I don't think anybody with a with any strategic sense thinks that we will improve our situation by abandoning 
not only Ukraine, but our allies in Europe in the middle of that war in order to turn to these uh, other conflicts. I think that would send a sign of incredible uh, weakness and retreat on our part. The only thing I will say about you know having all these crises at the same time is this is not that unusual. If you think about the immediate post-World War II period, the, what we used, what we think of as the early Cold War, think about all the things that were blowing up around the world at that time. It was the Middle East, it was Europe, and it was Asia. Um, this is the world we live in. We're used to being able to pick and choose which region we want to care about, but the fact is we have to care about all of it. Politically, I think it can be sold to the American people, but one thing I will say very is very important. President Biden needs to sell it. He needs to explain to the American people why this is a moment that requires real sacrifice, real attention, real engagement, a real increase in the defense budget, which his administration and, by the way, Republicans have been unwilling to do. Uh, this is a moment to rally the American people. I think they can be rallied, but we'll have to see. Mm -hmm. Hugh, I see you nodding in agreement. Last word to you. Well, there's a triangle of tyrants, Putin, Xi, and Khamenei, and the three of them are just bound up together. And to help one is to help all three, to hurt one is to hurt all three, and Americans have to consider that this is the new axis of evil. It's real, they are allies, and we cannot treat one problem differently from the other, and hopefully the, the Congress will get its act together. And I agree with Bob, the president has to make that case, and he has not yet done so, if he wants to keep American public opinion on the side of funding Ukraine and resupplying Israel. Then we're going to leave it there. Hugh Hewitt, Robert Kagan, thank you very much for coming back uh, to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, John. You too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.